Hey, Justin, what's up? Not much, Jimmy. Hashtag chillin'. What's up with you? It's been busy working. Hashtag rise and grind. Hashtag is it Friday yet? <laughs> <laughs> hey, check it out. I brought you some cookies. Hashtag homemade. Hashtag oatmeal raisin. Hashtag show me the cookie. <laughs> Sweet. Hashtag don't mind if I don't. Pretty good. Hashtag getting my cookie on. Hashtag I'm the real cookie monster. Hashtag no, 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 no. Delicious, right? Yeah. Hashtag I did it all for the cookie. Hashtag Hashtag classic. By the way, did you catch last week's episode of Duck Dynasty? Hashtag quack quack. Nah, lately I've mostly been watching Netflix. Hashtag Orange is the New Black. Oh, nice. I've been watching a lot of Barney the Dinosaur. Hashtag Purple is the New Black. Hashtag I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. Hashtag I'm 38. Hashtag Dinosaurs. Hashtag How do they go extinct? Hashtag Meteor. Hashtag Ice Age. Hashtag Speaking of Ice Age, I just watched Ice Age on demand the other day. Hashtag Funny. Hashtag Ray Romano. Hashtag Debra! Debra! All right, I want to thank uh, I want to thank Jimmy and Justin for helping us understand a little bit more about what hashtags stand for. You now know as much about them as I do. No, I'm just kidding. Hashtags were created with the social media to give us an online uh, categorization or, or folder system. Basically, if you go to an event or a place or you witness or experience something, you could put a little hashtag on your post, and everyone else who went there saw that, experienced it had a similar thing happen, um, you can search that and everybody's pictures and posts in that common, with that common hashtag would come up. So it's a way of literally social networking. Um, Pastor Derek also explained to us another use that hashtags have, have um, been used for, uh, developed uh, recently, and that is to basically take an experience or something you, you see or think and condense it down just to a couple of words, just a little uh, pithy expression to kind of summarize what you felt, saw, um, experienced. And we've used these in this new series we've been doing here at at the church these past uh, two weeks, and we'll continue through the months of April and May as a way to sort of capture some of the most common misconceptions of the Christian faith. We've sort of captured them in little two to three word phrases with a hashtag, and what we are doing Sunday after Sunday in this series is to try to address those, to try to talk about the misconception and then address it with the truth from God's Word. And so you can see the schedule. Um, we're in week three there, April 22nd, Waiting on Heaven. Uh, as we move into May, um, our teaching team at the church here, we've, we've come up with what we feel are seven of the most common misconceptions about the Christian faith, but we've left the eighth one up to you. So the hashtag for May the 27th is to be determined by you. And we've created a a way on our website for you to actually respond and share back with us. These are some of the most common misconceptions I hear and I see about the Christian faith. I'd love for you to talk about this topic. I'd love for you to address this issue that my friends have or or other non-believers in my life constantly question me about as it relates to the Christian faith. And so you can go to cccliveorg slash fake-news, or you can just go to the homepage and click on the little right, uh, little learn more red button up on the right. And when you click through, it'll send you to this page where you can send us, you could submit your idea for what would be a good sermon topic for the last one in this series. This will be the last week that this um, opportunity is open for you. So if you have ideas, please go ahead and send them in to us today, tomorrow, Tuesday. And then starting on Wednesday, we'll, we'll close this down and we'll begin to compile all of the suggestions we've already received and to try to group them together. And then next, starting next Sunday, we'll present those um, 
your ideas back to you for you then to vote on and let us know what you think would be the best one for us to talk about in that last week of the series. So every misconception has a morsel of truth in it. Um, if you think about what a misconception is, it's, it's a misunderstanding of something that's actually right or true. It's just that misconceptions come from truths that have either been misunderstood, exaggerated, distorted in some way. And so two weeks ago when we started the series, Pastor Keith uh, addressed the, the common misconception that Christians are to judge not. That Jesus said judge not, so there should be no judgment at all uh, among Christians or in churches. And really what the Bible says is that Christians are not to judge those outside of the Christian faith, but that within the faith we actually help each other when we bring accountability, when we call out the dangerous or destructive things in each other's lives, that that is actually a helpful thing that Christian brothers and sisters do for one another. And the analogy that Jesus used was um, like getting a, a grain of sand or maybe a fleck of sawdust or something in your eye. You know, if I have something like that in my eye and I can't see in the mirror to pick it out, then I, I may need a friend to come to me and to very lovingly and, and tenderly and gently help remove the speck from my eye, right? It's a helpful thing. But if you've got a speck in your eye and I come to you to help you with it and I've got a giant two-by-four sticking out of my face and I walk up to you to help you, I'm going to whack you in the face with the two-by-four sticking out of my own eye. So Jesus said, it's not just judge not, but judge not hypocritically. Don't come to pick the speck out of another believer's eye when there's a giant plank sticking out of your own. He said, first, deal with the plank in your own eye. Then you can see clearly to help your friend who needs you to help them pick the, the fleck of sawdust out of their eye. So on April 15th, last week, Pastor Derek addressed the misconception that love is acceptance, that in the Bible and that according to God, godly love is just to accept people, just to receive them exactly as they are, and that's it. And there is a kernel of truth in that. Um, that is uh, the starting place for God's love. But Pastor Derek taught us through how God doesn't just come to us and receive us exactly as we are, that he leads us into a life of transformation with him. When Jesus came to the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the others in the New Testament, he did welcome them as they were. He did eat with them in their homes. He did go to the places where they were. So he definitely received them, interacted with them, and accepted them in his love. But in every case, he called them into a life of growth, of maturing, of change, and of transformation. So Jesus just doesn't come to us in our broken places and say, I love you, and that's all. He says, I love you, and I'm inviting you to come with me, to come experience the fullness of life that God has destined you for, to be released from the things that bind you and hold you back. And so the misconception is that love is just acceptance. But the truth is that love accepts and transforms. So the misconception that we're going to address today uh, at church is the misconception that Christians are just hashtag waiting on heaven. And there are a lot of people in the world who think that's true of us. There are even a lot of Christians who think that's the truth for themselves. So the first question I want us to start with is, are Christians really waiting for heaven? And when I think about this, the first scripture that comes to my mind is from Matthew chapter 6. Um, Jesus' brand new disciples are there, and he's teaching them how to pray, how to talk to God. And he uses these words. I'd, I'd love for you to pray these words along with me. They'll be on the screen. So let's pray these words together. These come straight from Matthew chapter 6. It's Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us away from temptation and deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Jesus is teaching his new disciples how to pray. And the opening line of his prayer is to address God as Father, Father, uh, you are in heaven, holy is your name. And the second line of the prayer that Jesus teaches them to pray is, your kingdom come, your will be done right here on earth just the same way it is in heaven. That's my prayer. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. If you look over in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying again, this time towards the very end of his earthly life. And in his prayer, he actually defines eternal life as simply knowing God. He prays, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the first question we tackle is, what is heaven really? What is heaven really? I think a baseline misconception about Christianity that we have to address is this idea that heaven is the reward or the prize or the goal of our faith, that heaven is our focus, that heaven is what we're aiming for, that heaven is our goal, heaven is the reason we exist, it's our purpose. But is that really true of biblical Christianity? I'll ask it, I'll ask it of you another way. Would you want to go to heaven if Jesus were not there? Now, the truth is there's no heaven without Jesus, but is it Jesus that we're really looking forward to, or is it the streets of gold and the mansions and the banquets and the no suffering and the no tears? Is it all that stuff that we're looking forward to more than Jesus? Or for some people, just being really honest, is the prize of heaven just the reality that it's not hell? And so for that reason alone, we're looking forward to it, and that's our reward. So the first misconception I want to address is this idea that the prize of the Christian life is heaven, because it's not. The prize of living with and for God is that we get God himself. The prize of the Christian life is God's presence. The prize of the Christian life is getting to dwell continuously in an unbroken, peace-filled relationship with our Creator, our Savior, our Redeemer God. If you jump right to the very end of the scripture, the next to the last chapter in our Bibles, Revelation chapter 21, um, John has been caught up in this vision with the angel, and he gets to go to heaven, and he's just scribbling down everything he's seeing as fast as he can, trying to figure out how he's going to describe what he's seeing with his human eyes to a human audience when he gets back back to them someday. And this is what he sees in the very beginning of Revelation chapter 21. I'll just read the first four verses. John said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed as her husband. So that's what John sees. That's the vision he sees. And then he hears something. Listen to verse 3. This is how God himself describes our existence in heaven. And I heard a loud voice coming from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then this very familiar verse, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And so there's no heaven without God. And 
The truth is, we know very little about the physical place of heaven, what it's going to be like. But one thing we know for sure is that God is there. And that's enough. Because we will get to experience and live in God's perfect love for us. We will get to join him in the abundant, overflowing, never-ending life and relationship of that perfect love together with him. And in Romans 8, verse 17, we are assured that everything that is due to Jesus as God's one and only Son, everything that belongs to Him, He fully and freely shares with us as His co-heirs in His Father's kingdom. So, what will heaven be like? We don't know much about it, what the physical place is going to be like. So, what will it be like? Will there be streets of gold? Now, when I think about this image and when I read on in Revelation chapter 21, you've got to remember that John is a human being. He's got finite language to describe what he's seeing, a finite mind. He's trying to translate this incredible vision of eternity to an audience who's going to receive his words, and they are limited. We are limited in our understanding. And so he's using what little language he has to try to describe what he's seeing. So are there literal streets of gold in heaven, or is he being figurative and metaphorical? I don't know, but I think he's being metaphorical because when I think about streets and pavement and the fact that they could or would use gold for that in heaven, it just makes me think like John is trying to communicate to us the worth, what things are worth in heaven, what matters in heaven. And it's like he's saying, hey, you know the most precious and costly substance we have here on earth? That's what they use as concrete in heaven, all right? Like, like as valuable as concrete is on, is on earth, that's how valuable gold is in heaven. Meaning, everything about our lives together with God in eternity is of much, is of infinitely more value and cost and preciousness than even gold is. So, what about mansions and feasts? Are we going to have these kinds of things in heaven? Well, I actually think we will. Um, Jesus talked about the many rooms in his father's house in John chapter 14. Uh, On two separate occasions, Jesus was quite elaborate in describing a great wedding feast, a great banquet uh, that we will experience in the kingdom of God. That's in Luke 14 and 22. And so I think there's going to be some of that there. I don't know what food's going to taste like in heaven, but but it's going to be awesome. Um, So I think there's some literal aspects to some of that. Now, what about this vision of heaven? What about clouds and harps and loincloths? All right, I specifically chose a cartoon for this one because there's basically no biblical evidence that this is what our lives in heaven is going to look like, okay? There's certainly going to be lots of music. There's going to be tons of singing and worship happening. But the fact or the idea that we're just going to be issued a cloud and a harp and a loincloth for eternity There's just no biblical evidence that this is what our future in heaven is going to look like or be like. But here's the most important question about what will heaven be like. Will Jesus be there? And the answer is absolutely yes. Now, this is from a movie. This is a scene from a movie. This is an actor portraying Jesus. But I love this picture. I love the idea that there will come a day in my life when I will look into the physical face of Jesus And he will look into my physical face with his physical eyes. And I think the expression is going to look a little something like this. 
I think my presence there with him in eternity is going to bring a smile to his face. I think he's going to hold your face in his hands, and he's just going to be overflowing with the delight in his heart. He thought you up. He made you. He died for you, and now here you are with him forever. I look forward to that. (laughs) I'm excited about that. I'm glad that's part of our future. So will Jesus be there? Yes. Will we have intimacy with him who made us, knows us, loves us completely, and rescued us? Yes. Will we constantly experience unbroken wholeness and peace in the presence of God? Yes. Will our souls be flooded with holy joy in the presence of God? Yes. Will all fear melt away because God's perfect love casts out all fear? Yes. Will there be no more pain or suffering because the curse and power of sin has been obliterated out of our lives in Jesus' name? Yes. That is God's kingdom. That is the kingdom of heaven. That is what heaven is like and is going to be like for all of us whose faith is in Jesus when we die. Amen. Now, where did Jesus say his kingdom was coming? I love that the first sort of public messages of Jesus, the first time he stands before or addresses a group of people kind of with his proclamation from God. These are the first things he said. I wanted to go into the, the gospel, sort of the four authorized biographies of Jesus's life to find out what's, what's the first thing he had to say from, from God when he came to speak to people. Um, not just his first words, but kind of his first message from heaven. Um, in Matthew, we, we read about it in chapter four, in verse 17, Jesus's first sentence is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Mark records it a little different in, in chapter 1 of the book of Mark. He remembers Jesus saying, The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the good news. And then Luke was there on a very special day in the synagogue when Jesus was in Nazareth and he spoke to the people in the synagogue. In Luke chapter 4, this is how he records the story. Starting with verse 14. Luke writes, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Jesus went up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. In the Sabbath day, on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, and that was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place in Isaiah where these words are written. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the synagogue attendant, and he sat down. And then he began by saying today, saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so that's the truth. That's why Jesus came. And that's what God wanted to accomplish by sending him here to the earth. And it's what he wants to continue to, to accomplish through us as his followers, as he fills us with his spirit, and as we live out our earthly lives right here today. But this is, this is what some people think the Christian life is. They misconceive of why the spirit would send Jesus. This is an exaggeration, but I'm just painting a contrast for you here, okay? Some people misconceive of why the Spirit was upon Jesus and therefore why he's upon us today. And this is their misconception. That the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon us so that we could walk an aisle. We could pray a prayer. 
we could get our spiritual ticket punched. And then we can just hang on for dear life until we can get to heaven someday. Right? That's the misconception. But the truth is, the Spirit came upon Jesus and the Spirit now fills the the lives of believers today so that we can uh, preach the good news to the poor. So that we can proclaim freedom to captives. So that we can restore sight to the blind. So that we can release the oppressed. And so that we can pronounce the Lord's favor. And those are all things that happen in the here and now. Those aren't things that just wait for heaven and glory and by and by someday when I die. Those are all here and now things that Jesus came to do and that his spirit now fills us to do. And I just want to focus in a second on that last one, the last phrase of why Jesus said the spirit was, was upon him. The idea that he, he had come to pronounce the Lord's favor. That phrase has a, um, a lot of meaning in my personal life, in my own testimony with the Lord, um, I, I've grown up in God's love. Uh, I grew up going to church, thank, thankful to my grandparents for that. Um, and so I grew up believing and knowing that God was real, that he loved me. I grew up knowing that I was a, a sinner and eternally separated from God because of my sin, but because of his great love for me, that he sent his son, that I could be reconciled with him through the, through the sacrifice, the perfect life and sacrifice of Jesus. Just from my earliest days, I believed that was real and right and true. I, I've never had a struggle believing in the love of God for me. But all throughout my life, I've had tremendous struggle believing that God liked me. You know, I I kind of viewed myself like that cousin or the crazy uncle or that relative that you know you're going to see at Thanksgiving dinner or at the family reunion, and you kind of dread seeing them there. I mean, you love them because you share a last name, and you love them because they're, they're kin, you know, but you just don't really like them. You don't enjoy them. Uh, you're probably all thinking of someone right now. <laughs> um, that's kind of how I viewed myself in the family of God. You know, I'm, I'm adopted, I'm loved, but he's God. He has to love me. That's kind of his job, right? He can't like me. There's no way he likes me. But I'm so grateful that through mentors and through excellent Bible teaching and through exposure to verses like Zephaniah 3.17 that say the Lord your God is with you, he is mighty to save, he takes great delight in you, he will quiet you with his love and he rejoices over you with singing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the sons and the daughters of God. This is a God who doesn't just love because he has to and because he's compelled to. This is a God who delights in his children. This is a God who looks like the actor who is portraying Jesus, who is holding the face of a beloved loved one and smiling into their face at the thought of spending eternity together with them. That's how God feels about you. That's how God feels about me. And to this day at 38, I'm still growing up in that. Believing and trusting in the love of God, but growing up in the like, the delight, the favor of God. And Jesus came to proclaim the Lord's favor. And we get the opportunity as his followers today to proclaim the Lord's favor. This idea that we get to live in intimacy with God, that we get to share in his presence and to know him, it's not something that we just have to wait on heaven to realize We can have that kind of a relationship now before death. Now, it's imperfect. It's not complete. And we'll talk about that in just a couple minutes. But it's not something we just have to long for and wait for in some distant future. Some people misconceive of the Lord's Prayer in the same way. They might think that the prayer kind of goes like this. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. 
your kingdom stay, your will be done in heaven, period. And I look forward to joining you up there someday. But Jesus didn't teach us to pray that way. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that informs how I pray about every other aspect of my life. And so I just take the words of Jesus and I just pray them over my own life and over my own context and surroundings and environment. I say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my home as it is in heaven. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in my thoughts, in my heart, in my relationships, at my workplace, in my school. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in Columbus, Georgia as it is in heaven. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in the United States of America as it is in heaven. It informs how I pray because I don't want God's kingdom, his values, his purposes just to reside up in heaven while we suffer through. I want it to come down and be present in the here and now. And that's how Jesus taught us to pray. Again, not that it would be perfect or complete while we're here on the earth, but that we don't have to wait for the distant future for these things to begin to happen in our lives. Some people misconceive of Jesus' first public messages from God. We read them from Mark and Matthew earlier. Jesus said, repent. Why? So you can go to heaven someday. But that wasn't Jesus' message. Jesus' first public message was to repent. And repent just means we turn away from lives devoted to sin and we turn toward a life devoted to God. And he said, why? Why should you repent? Because the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. So there's a morsel of truth in every misconception. It's just that the truth can sometimes get misinterpreted or exaggerated. It can be misunderstood or taken out of context. So what's the truth in this misconception that Christians are just waiting on heaven? Well, the truth is, heaven's real. It's a real place. It really exists. (laughs) The truth is that those who die with their faith in Jesus, they go there. That really happens. That's real, and that's true. The way to have faith in Jesus is to confess and repent of your sin to him, to trust him in your heart, to profess with your mouth that he is your Savior. And in our culture and in our context, the, the way most people do that, or the way a lot of people do that, is by walking an aisle and praying a prayer, right? So am I, just, am I just confirming the misconception? I'm not, and here's why. Because all that I just described is just the starting point for the Christian life. It's not the finish line. If all that I just described was the finish line, then walking the aisle, praying the prayer, getting saved, and looking forward to heaven, the hashtag would be true. We really would just be waiting on heaven. But Jesus described these steps as, as being born again. So if you think about the life of a baby, when a baby is born, that's just the very beginning. Those are just the earliest and first days of its life, growing up as a human being. And the same is true of us spiritually. When we walk the aisle, when we pray the prayer, when we take that step to place our trust in Jesus, that's just the very beginning. That's just the start of our lives with God. And so the truth is, We are waiting on heaven, but we're not just waiting on heaven. Once we get saved, we don't just retreat into this passive posture where we just sit back and just wait for what is to come. Ours is is a waiting, but it's not a passive waiting. It's an active waiting where we are acting in concert with the Holy Spirit. We're we're acting in cooperation with, with God and what he wants to do in and through us. His Holy Spirit has come to live in us when we place our faith in him. And so... He wants to, with our cooperation, bring his kingdom values and purposes and and principles right here to our little corner of the earth, wherever that is. 
So I love hearing, getting to hear stories like from Frontier Alliance and what's happening in Syria and Israel and Iraq. I love getting to hear stories of um, my friends who are still on the Mercy ship. They're in Cameroon right now. And so people are uh, recovering. Uh, cataract surgeries will happen tomorrow morning. And those who've been blind their whole lives will walk off the ship in two or three days seeing for the first time ever. I love that. I love that that's real. I love what I got to hear about... Um, Last weekend at the, the Mercy Med Gala, we have a, a free hospital right here in our city, and they are serving the poor right here in Columbus. I, I didn't get to go this week, but I've heard stories from uh, a ministry, Seneca Choices for Life. They are working with pregnant women and helping them choose life for their babies and, and bringing transformation and wholeness into the lives of these ladies. And I love hearing these things that are happening across the world and right here at home, that God's kingdom is, is alive and at work through his spirit and through his people right now in the here and now. And I love hearing those stories and being reminded of how active and present and real it all is. And he is with us. Those who've been saved by Christ are in an active engagement in Christ's mission right here, right now on this earth. I heard a preacher years ago once put it this way, simply, if you're not dead, you're not done. That was how he would answer this misconception about Christianity. So we are waiting. There is a waiting happening. We are waiting for the full and complete realization of all that we've been promised in Christ. But in the meantime, we have tremendous work to do, joining together with God in his great redemption plan of life on earth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, this truth, we're, we're reminded of this, and we know this is true, that when we look into the future, when we look into what heaven is going to be like, and we think about our kind of little glimpses we get of it here on this side. It's like looking in a, um, a mirror. I imagine like a, a mirror in a dimly lit room or a, a foggy place where you can just barely kind of make out what's there, but it's, it's unclear. But, but the writer here says, when we get there, we'll see face to face. It'll be as clear as it can be. He says, now we just know in part. We just experience little glimpses of it, but then we shall know fully. The truth is, living in a, a sin-sick world is, is hard. We're not experiencing heaven on earth. And for that reason, I can't wait until Jesus comes back and takes us all to be with him forever. But until then, this is where God has us. And we have important eternity-shaping work to do while we're here. I want to read these verses for you from Ephesians chapter 2. It's verses 8 through 10. It talks about being saved and then the purpose of that salvation. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then verse 10, for we are God's workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so we are saved, and we do have heaven to look forward to. But in the meantime, God has created us for good works to be done right here in our present lives, in our present circumstances, in our present relationships and realities. God wants to bring his kingdom near through our lives now.